chapter 18 as we look together at the first 16 verses under the heading three men and God himself. First Kings chapter 18, as you know, continues the life of Elijah, and it does so now in which um, Elijah and Ahab uh, confront one another, or more significantly, Elijah confronts Ahab, king of Samaria, who has married a pagan woman, Jezebel, and whose um, life or his rule promotes pagan worship. I think I probably said this earlier, but I'll say it again, that this confrontation stretches through the entire chapter, and we can place it under three headings. There is a confrontation or a contest or a challenge at three different levels. First of all, there's the challenge prophetically. That is that ultimately here, Elijah will confront Ahab with the word of God, and he will confront him with the will of God and and with the holiness of God. It is because of Ahab's corruption and the terrible confusion that has uh, 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 enveloped, if you will, enveloped the land of Samaria. The kingdom has been divided. Elijah, or rather Ahab, is the king of the northern kingdom, and it has become exceedingly corrupt and spiritually marked by great confusion. And that's the first 16 verses. And in some ways, there is a kind of of blending and an overlap in these, but we can look at them under these three headings. The second is a challenge, what we might call a challenge devotionally. And that's in verses 7 through 15. And so we've backed up a little bit and we're still a part of the 16 verses. But there's a second section there which has to do with a man by the name of Obadiah. How do we evaluate him? There are a number, actually not very many, but there are a few who would seek to criticize him and uh, suggest that he's marked by uh, compromise and um, is really far from where he ought to be devotionally before the Lord. We'll look at that in just a few moments. But actually, it is a passage that brings to us great consolation and shows something of his compassion and his true godliness. And so there's a challenge prophetically. There's a challenge devotionally. How do we look at this man and how Elijah looks at him? And then thirdly and finally, which stretches from verse 16, it's introduced here, but it stretches all the way through the end of the chapter, and that is the challenge theologically. That is, 
there's a controversy here between two worldviews, between two religions, and between two gods. And here is where real confrontation takes place. One writer has put it this way, that the most dramatic story, or this most dramatic story, marks the turning point when the worship of the Lord is almost wiped out by the opposition. A single prophet challenges the whole state that is the nation to return to God. And this is that confrontation with the prophets of, of Baal that we see unfolded toward the end of the chapter. Now, Elijah is a man of faith, and faith grows. And with faith, there's always a learning curve. I'm sure that as you look back over uh, a lifetime, in many cases, uh, almost a lifetime, having been a Christian for many, many years, you have come to see that there are certain parts of your faith experience that your faith has, has grown and you have, and you have learned. Well, the same thing is true with Elijah. So it was with Elijah that there's a kind of learning curve that is embedded in the verses up to this point and really beyond. And it seems as if Elijah has had a, a very small uh, work to perform, and now he's been laid aside, and he's laid aside for three years. And what does he do? Well, he doesn't seem to have anything uh, to do, and it's a kind of a, a downtime. But as one writer, one preacher has said, providence never wastes time. And whatever it is that we pass through, it's not a waste of time, and it is in the hands of God. Notice some of the things that comes to Elijah's attention up to this point. First of all, he has a better grasp on irreverence, idolatry, and the public calamity and the, the iniquity uh, that this brings to the nation. He's seen something over this period of time, once the original challenge has taken place, he's seen something of this irreverence and wickedness and ungodliness unfold. He's also learned, secondly, something of the holiness of God. Here this famine has gone on for three years. God has not let up. God has not changed his mind. God has not changed his, uh, his approach to things. That, and so Elijah has a better sense, uh, um, better intelligence, if you will, of the grandeur and the holiness of God. Elijah has also learned something in the school of obedience. Here he has announced that um, uh, there would be no rain, that a, that a famine would come, and then he's told to leave. He's not told to do any more preaching, but he's told to leave to the brook Cherith, seemingly out in the middle of, of nowhere. And then later when that stream dries up, uh, and he's fed by the ravens. Then he's told to go to a, a, a town of Zarephath, um, a Phoenician uh, town, uh, or at least um, the woman had been influenced by Jezebel. 
He's also learned something of dependence, dependence upon the Lord. The brook has dried up. A child has died. He's provided food for that family, and then the child dies. And what is Elijah to do? Well, he's learned to depend upon the Lord. He's learned something of resilience as well. Um, he's been fed by ravens and by a widow. The provisions were slender, certainly not um, sitting at a king's table. I think the thing that Elijah is learning the most right now is patience, patient endurance. He's had nothing to do for three years, or at least nothing that we know about. Doesn't seem to be preaching. The prophets uh, of Jehovah uh, have been uh, sequestered in a cave by Obadiah. So what has he done? Well, it seems like it's downtime, like it's wasted time, because nothing is happening. But again, as we'll come to see, that providence never wastes time. And so above all things, he's learned compliance. He's learned obedience. He's learned to resign himself before the Lord in the face of an uncertain future. Obedience, but also resignation in the face of an unseen, uh, unclear, unknown to him, unknown future. Well, how do we open this up then uh, in terms of where we are right now? Well, coming back to the, the title of the sermon, three men are highlighted. Three men are, are further introduced in the case of Elijah um, and perhaps Ahab, but there's also the introduction of this uh, prophet by the, or this uh, um, uh, uh, servant by the name of Obadiah. So the focus is upon three persons and something of their present personalities. So the first one that appears in verses one through six is Ahab himself. And we discover here the hard headedness and hard heartedness of this king of Israel. And we notice as well in that context the plan and the purpose, even the sovereignty of God in view of the hard headedness and hard heartedness of this king. The passage is marked by continuity. Nothing seems to change. Ahab does not change in the context of everything taken away. You would think it would be something of a, of a wake-up call for him. But as so often with unbelief, there is no wake-up call that Ahab does not relent with regard to the famine it doesn't move him to do anything to save or to protect his people. We'll notice more of that in a moment. And with regard to Ahab's faithlessness, excuse me, with regard to the famine, God does not relent. He doesn't stop. 
And with regard to Ahab's faithlessness, he does not repent. So it appears as if everything is at a kind of of a standstill, not really, but nothing has changed. There's, There's this continuity, this unchanging set of circumstances which goes on now for three plus years, long years. And it's not as if Ahab is ignorant of God's purposes because it was revealed in in the law of Moses that God's blessing would flow down upon his people if they would remain obedient to him. When you have a moment, you may want to consult Deuteronomy chapter 28 and pretty much the first 24 verses that, that God had promised blessing uh, upon the people, uh, blessing upon the land, and even blessing individually, physically, with regard to health. If only they would obey the law of God. So Ahab's not an ignorant man. Ahab's fully aware of what God has said, what God has promised to do in view of the people's faithfulness in the land. And yet he remains fixed upon his depravity. He knows full well that the severity, that this drought could not be explained in natural terms. It could not be explained in terms of weather cycles or the change in weather or anything else except for God's plan and purpose. In fact, 2 Samuel chapter 21 and verse 1 has to do with an experience of David in which David realizes himself that the famine that has come upon the land was the result of Saul's wickedness. Sin has consequences. Sin has implications. And here is a king who knows enough of biblical faith and biblical religion to know that that's actually the case. And you'll notice that there is a strategy, which I'll come to in a moment, but there is no strategy for the safety and the well-being of his people. Now, one could, I suppose, read into what Ahab does that he's really doing this for the sake of the people, but there's absolutely nothing there that is mentioned about his subject. And saddest of all, in one sense, Elijah is marginalized. I've already mentioned this, but wouldn't it be the wisest thing and wouldn't it be the, the, the most spiritual thing, if you will, for Elijah to have a preaching and a pulpit ministry at this time? But he doesn't. He's marginalized. He's set aside for things to unravel even more. Many days are mentioned in these opening six verses that he had been sidelined many days. 
Providence had sidelined Elijah, but Providence did not eradicate his calling. Elijah now is about to come into his own. And Elijah now will be used to confront Ahab and the false prophets. But back up just for a moment with me. We are told that there was a certain servant by the name of Obadiah, not to be confused with the prophet Obadiah in the Minor Prophets, a different Obadiah. And Ahab taps him to work with him. He's a servant in the household um, of the king, uh, a head servant, perhaps. And they're going to divide the nation and travel separately throughout the nation to see if they can't find water and grass for the mules and the horses. Mules were used for carrying things. They were the trucks of the day. And horses were used in battle, in combat. Soldiers would ride them or would attach them to chariots. And so Ahab is worried about the economy and to some degree probably the military. There's absolutely no mention at all of the people. Now there's a a, a term or a phrase or a concept that we may not be as familiar with and that is throughout the Old Testament period that Kings were often referred to as shepherds. The term shepherd king emerges. And so here is a man who is to be a shepherd king, shepherding his subjects, but there's no mention of the subjects at all. Ahab has abandoned his calling to protect the animals of the kingdom. Animals have more value than people. Animals are to be saved, no mention of the people. Animals have more value than the people, and they need saving while people die, and people have been dying. Here is a shepherd who knew nothing of giving his life for his sheep unlike our shepherd king, the Lord Jesus Christ. He shepherds livestock instead of sheep. Ahab has not changed. His policies have not changed. His priorities remain wrong headed. Roger Ellsworth in his commentary writes, Ahab did not have a monopoly on hard-headedness toward God. There are no shortages of Ahabs in our own time. 
even though the word of God has been abundantly confirmed time after time down through the intervening centuries, there are multitudes who insist on living as if it were a myth. And so the hard-headedness of Ahab, who does not appear to change at all. Now notice secondly in verses 3 through 6, but also verses 7 through 15, the thoughtfulness of Obadiah. The thoughtfulness of Obadiah. His identity surfaces right at the outset. He's a chief steward, a servant in the household. His was a high position of trust. Someone has said that we might refer to him as the head domestic administrator. He was responsible, and in fact, we have, uh, uh, we have information given to us about stewardship and stewards like this um, as, uh, as, as recently, if you will, as the New Testament. At the same time, not only is, does he have this high position of responsibility in the household of the king, but he's also marked by faith, by reverence. He feared the Lord greatly. And we cannot ignore that because it's mentioned two, thought, two times. He feared the Lord, and then he feared the Lord from his youth. Here, was one who feared the Lord greatly, and it began when he was young. He is a believer. Obadiah is a man of faith. Now notice that he was the Lord's and the king's without compromise. It's an important principle that surfaces here. It is permissible for a true believer to serve a pagan king. And we discover that even in New Testament times. In Luke chapter 3, there were a number of people that, that uh, came to Jesus and said early on in his ministry, what should we do? And there were a group of soldiers that came to Jesus and they said, well, well, what, what should we do as soldiers? And he tells them in uh, Luke chapter 3 and verse 14, and soldiers also asked him, saying, and we, what must we do? And he said unto them, extort from no man by violence, neither, that, that is, don't misuse your, um, uh, your calling or your, your work, your uh, being a soldier, neither accuse anyone wrongfully and be content with your wages. And so here are soldiers who ask Jesus, and he doesn't say to them, resign from the military. There was a soldier, remember, at the cross who said, surely or truly, this was the Son of God. This man was the Son of God. And no one told him, well, to confess and to make your confession 
uh, and to, for it to be real, you need to resign the military. When we come to the book of Philippians, we find in Philippians 1.13 and again in chapter 4 and verse 22 that there were soldiers professing Christ who were in the Praetorian Guard and also members of Caesar's household. They could serve God and serve the nation at the same time. Think, too, of examples, personal examples, like Joseph and, and Daniel, uh, who served uh, pagan kings and were not prohibited from doing so. Chapter 24 of our confession addresses this issue, and it addresses it because in the 17th century, there were those, they were called Anabaptists, not to be confused with Baptists, and that's a whole historical uh, sort of, of issue, but they were Anabaptists, the descendants of which today are the Mennonites and the Amish and so forth, who believed and who would be, uh, who believed that it was um, improper for believers to be a part of the military or to vote in any, um, uh, on, any, on any occasion. And in fact, they were actually disciplined or excommunicated from the community if, in fact, they did that. We have a chapter in our confession uh, entitled The Civil Magistrate. It's chapter 24. And there are three paragraphs. I'll not read the whole thing, but here's paragraph two. It is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate where call, where, when called thereunto, in the management whereof, as they ought especially to maintain justice and peace, according to the wholesome laws of each kingdom and commonwealth. Matthew Henry puts it this way, that man that is true to his God will be faithful to his prince. God has his remnant among all sorts, high and low. There were saints in Nero's household and in Ahab's. Dale Ralph Davis writes, we may draw a legitimate application based on this discussion Obadiah is obviously very different from Elijah. Elijah's ministry is more public and confrontational. Obadiah works quietly in behind-the-scenes fashion and yet is faithful in the sphere where God has placed him. The Bible never tells us that there is only one kind of faithful servant. It never demands that you must be an Elijah clone. Models are helpful, but slavish Imitation of them is foolish. And Tom Lyon, in a series of sermons on Elijah, said this, two Elijahs would have been one too many, as a way of saying things. Two Elijahs would have been one too many. Here is a man who is marked by faith. He's also marked by defiance in his own way. He remains a servant of the king, and yet he protects a hundred prophets. 
As Davis says, Obadiah saves prophets, Ahab saves mules. And we discover his diligence as a servant of the king. He's given an order, and he's obedient to that order. And it was in fulfilling that order that he meets Elijah, notice, in the way. In the way. Now, there's one other thing that we need to notice about um, this man, Obadiah, and that is his reticence or his fear, his reluctance. Elijah meets up with him and tells him to go to Ahab and tell Ahab that today Elijah would appear before him. So he has he's been given by a task by the prophet, by God's prophet, as Elijah now rises to the occasion. And Obadiah is fearful. He's a believer. He saved the prophets. He works for the king, but he's afraid of the king. Notice that he feared a number of, a number of things. He feared deliverance or being delivered over into the hands of the king that Elijah might disappear, and as a result of that, he would be delivered into the hand of Ahab. He actually feared destruction. What, what sin has come upon me that, that this would happen? He fears discovery. He fears desertion, that Elijah would be gone, be taken away, and he would be all alone. He fears the particular duty that he's be, been given. You know, we, we have this phrase that comes out of our culture and our voca no, vocabulary, no good deed goes unpunished. It, I, I suspect that that's exactly what, what Obadiah was fearing. Above all, he feared death. Here was a man, as one has said, who was faithful but faint-hearted. And yet, from all we can tell from the text, he remained dependent upon the Lord despite his faint-heartedness. And he went, in verse 16, and made the announcement to Ahab. He feared God and was faithful to him. And he answers what his name really means, which is servant of the Lord. Obadiah saves prophets. Again, Ahab wants to save mules. Here is a man who is thoughtful, faithful, and even in, in the midst of a certain level of fearfulness, continues to obey God through the words of the prophet that have come to him. Well, thirdly and finally, notice the uniqueness of Elijah, the hard-headedness and hard-heartedness of Ahab, the thoughtfulness of Obadiah, and the uniqueness of Elijah. The Elijah is bold as a lion. 
and becomes more so and more so through the unfolding of this particular passage. Roger Ellsworth writes, as he saw his kingdom shriveling away before his very eyes, Ahath may well have consoled himself by envisioning that shining moment when some of his soldiers would burst into his court and fling Elijah to the floor in front of him. How quickly Elijah would say the magic word to end the famine as he groveled before Ahab and begged for his life. It was not to be. It was not to be. For Elijah was not found by Ahab's soldiers, but simply showed up when God gave him the word. And Elijah was not brought before the king at all, but demanded that the king come before him. Notice the difference. What a strange turn of events. Or as Davis says, so before it is safe for the Lord to send rain, Baal must be discredited clearly, publicly, obviously, decisively in living color and a national prime time. Hence the extreme measures. As Baal is exposed as a non-god, no one with a clear head should think that rain comes from him. The point here in really verses 7 through 16 and beyond is that Ahab doesn't set the agenda. We have the notions that the high and mighty of the world actually set the agenda, but it's God who sets the agenda, and it's God who taps his prophet, and it's God who tells his prophet what to do. And there's this confrontation on Mount Carmel. And eventually we'll get there. The Lord of hosts has spoken, and Elijah has something to do. In fact, he will stand before Ahab that very day without planning, without premeditation. He's to go and to stand before him. And in the process, the drought will come to an end because it's fulfilled its purpose. And so here's a message, but here's also a ministry Obadiah is involved in this ministry set by the prophet Elijah. And so you have Elijah, obedient. You have Obadiah, obedient. And you have Ahab, confronted. And so here are two men, perhaps we ought to say three men, two of them on one side and one on the other side, representing different faiths, different religions. And Ahab is about to go down. Not doesn't happen yet, but he's about to go down, and we know the end of the story because we've read this chapter before, I'm sure, at some point. God sets the agenda. God is the one who is in control. And at the very same time, God uses human means. He uses an Elijah, 
uses an Obadiah, vastly different personalities, vastly different callings, but he uses both of them. Ahab has been summoned to answer And again, Elijah is the one, or rather God, through his servant, is the one who sets the agenda. Second observation and thought from the text is that even as the wicked persecuted the prophets in that day, so God's people have been persecuted ever since. And even the Lord Jesus promised and the apostles promised. Don't be surprised, Peter says, when some fiery trial comes upon you. And so a hundred prophets are persecuted and are hidden away. Obadiah is fearful as to what may happen to him. And yet they rise to the occasion. Faith is not compromised, faith is sustained, and God has his way. Perhaps the most significant and most important thought or observation surfacing from the text is we've looked at these three different individuals that Ahab really missed the boat, as it were. Ahab was responsible as a shepherd king for his people. He was a king, he was a leader, he had authority, but he was to exercise that authority through the shepherding of his people. And everybody knew what a shepherd was in that day, since sheep were prominent and were virtually everywhere. There is a shepherd king who failed and who failed miserably and whose destiny was short-lived and ended in disaster. He's defeated by the God of heaven. There is a shepherd king who failed and is an, is an illustration of all of the shepherd kings who have followed that particular way of thinking. But there is a shepherd king who will never fail to save. And we have sung about that shepherd king already this morning, especially through the 23rd Psalm. Here is a shepherd king who was prophesied. Matthew chapter 2 and, and verse 6, Herod hears of, of a, a king that has been born. And uh, he asks uh, the uh, scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, chief priests, scribes, and so forth, where would this Christ be born? And they cite Micah, the book of Micah, and <clears throat> these words, Thou Bethlehem, land of Judah, art in no wise least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come forth a governor, leader, king, who shall be shepherd of my people, Israel. 
Jesus also refers to himself in similar terminology in John chapter 10, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd layeth down his life for the sheep. Goes on and says, He that is a hireling and not a shepherd, whose own sheep are not, the sheep are not, behold the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth and the wolf snatcheth them and scatter them. Verse 13, because he cares not for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know mine own and mine own know me. There is a shepherd king altogether unlike any other king, any other shepherd king who has ever lived. And despite the promises that are often made by just about every political leader everywhere at some point, there's only one true shepherd king who is the shepherd and bishop, Peter says, of our souls. No one except Jesus Christ himself can shepherd and can authoritatively direct and lead his people. Ahab was not worthy of anybody's trust, but Jesus Christ is eminently worthy of our trust and our faith. Indeed, he is the shepherd king. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this particular book and this passage and what it teaches us about yourself and about your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We do pray that we might be faithful citizens of the country in which we live, that as a part of our calling as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to be servants of the king or the prince or the leader, leaders. But may that never interfere with our following the shepherd king, who is the savior of our souls. May our faith and our confidence and our focus remain upon him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.